What's up, y'all? And welcome to another episode of Worldly Church Girl. It's your girl, your host, Lillian Harshaw. On today's show, I have the entrepreneur, overcomer, CEO, self-made, inspiring author, Rocky Sang Candola. I want to call you so Rocky now. <laughs> How are you doing tonight? Doing very, very well. Blessed. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. And again, I'm so glad you are on here today because like I said, your story just, it don't even seem real. It sounds like a movie plot, like somebody made it up, but it it happened and you definitely overcame it all. And like I said, and for you to even to share it with the world is even more miraculous than anything else. So um, I want to get right into it. I want to start with, um, well, first tell everybody your name first. So my real name is actually Vikram Singh Candola, but I go mm-hmm. by Rocky. I've been called Rocky since I was a baby. Since before I was born, actually, my grandmother nicknamed me Rocky. She didn't speak English very well. Um, and then she saw me rocking around like in my mom's stomach and, oh. that, and that Rocky movie was coming out. So I was like, rock, rock, rock. And then Rocky. <laughs> and so, and I'm a huge Rocky fan. I'm, I mean, anytime Rocky's on TV, I'm, I'm, I'm there. Love me some rock. And I'm talking about the whole series, not just one, all of them, including Creed. So, um, since we're talking about your childhood, I want uh, you to share uh, a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, definitely. So um, my parents were born in India, actually, and they uh, migrated over here um, a couple years before I was born. I was born in 86 in the Bronx, New York. Um, and, and yeah, so uh, I was born into my parents' family in New York. There was a, my grandmother, a lot of family living around there. Um, and, you know, the Indian families, especially ones that are first generation coming over, overseas from India, they kind of tend to stick together uh, in those same areas. And you see that a lot with like different cities like Chinatown, you know, different places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, my father got an opportunity in down south, Mississippi, and took it um, for his career and brought us down there. I believe I was uh, maybe four years old, five years old at the oldest, um, mm-hmm. and kind of started us in schools down there. So a lot of my early childhood was kind of spent, you know, not around any Indian family or any people and not really understanding or just kind of getting confused about, you know, who I really was and my identity. And, uh, you know, as a child, you know, being different than everybody in your school kind of, you know. Um, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of like sly remarks and stuff, you know, as I got further into school and things like that, um, until, you know, eventually as we spoke about, um, I you know, started getting in, in trouble. Um, first at home, you know, my father wanted me to, as an Indian good kid, to like stay home, study, uh, you know, be with the parents all the time. And I was, um, unlike my brother and sister, just very outgoing, wanted to be outside. I would talk back really quickly and I, you know, I want to spend the time outside of the house at that age, it was just, you know, playing with other kids, playing tennis, uh, just being out and about, um, you know. So the first time I was, uh, you know, finally sent away, which just began a pattern of being sent away over over nine high schools, um, you know, in four different countries uh, since the age of 11, uh, the first time in India. And, um, you know, India, looking back as an adult, was, was actually a beautiful experience. However, being an 11-year-old kid, getting taken away from your friends and family, um, you know, it was definitely, it was definitely tough and it was definitely something that I didn't want. You know, I remember the only thing I would remember before leaving was being in the airport um, with my mom and my dad there. My dad was taking me. My mom just kind of being a little bit 
kind of somber and sad and just gave me a wallet as a gift, you know, you'll, you'll be okay. And you know, I didn't really know I was going to 100% be just sent there and left. And then my dad kind of brought me there, put me in an apartment nearby our family. And, you know, I've still in the back of my mind as a kid, I'm like, he's not leaving me. I'm not, I'm not about to be here. Right. And then, you know, he left and um, I spent the next six or seven months there going to public school and uh, just going on adventures. You know, at that point in time, um, I was, I think, 11 or 12 at the oldest and I would hop on buses and trains and go all the way across the country, scare everybody half to death and go for a tennis tournament. So a lot of freedom. But, you know, as a kid, you just miss home and things like that. Right. So there was a point in your life where you were sent out to um, a boot camp, right? Twice. 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 Can yep. you share the experience with everyone, what that yeah, was like? Definitely. So um, upon getting back from India, um, I started in a school down there. Um, and I was maybe 12 or 13. And my, my father taught me how to drive by this time. I would drive with the family, and I was a big kid. Um, and I eventually started sneaking his car out in the evenings. Uh, one of those times, I had my little brother with me and a friend with me, and we actually got pulled over uh, on the way back from uh, Ocean Springs, Mississippi, coming to Pasadena, Mississippi. Um, and the police officers, you know, they knew my father and they called him. And the next couple of days, you know, I was really big into tennis. I was supposed to be going off to a tennis camp in uh, near Louisiana, near New Orleans. And instead, um, I was on a flight, uh, you know, to Baja, California, Ensenada, Mexico, uh, to a boot camp that my father had found, I believe, like in a newspaper. You know, those ads you see every once in a while, like, you know, troubled, troubled teen, having problems right. with they call us, we'll say, we'll save your family for you. And mm -hmm. he was busy getting his career started. So like, he didn't really know exactly what he was getting into. Um, however, these programs and these boot camps were called the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. Uh, the one that I went to in particular in Mexico was called Casa by the Sea. Um, and there's tons of information, well, not tons, there's a decent amount of information out there on Google and YouTube about it. So if you check it out, you'll see, um, that they were eventually closed by the Mexican government for child abuse, uh, torture, rape, uh, even, you know, death and suicide. Um, so these boot camps are crazy. Uh, when you get there, you know, either you get there escorted uh, by your parents or these two tall men come and take you there. The first time I got escorted by my mother, the second time I went when I was 17, I got woken up in handcuffs, my hands and feet cuffed and escorted across the country there. Yeah. And, oh, my um, God. Yeah, there. That's just like the the iceberg, the, the tip. You know, like there's not really, there, it goes so much deeper. You know, when when you get there, if you're with your parents, you know they're gonna talk all nice. They're gonna introduce your parents and you know say hello to them, and they'll get taken behind the back room. Um, once you get taken back behind that back room, um, it's it's almost like the entire movie changes. The lights get dim, the walls get dirty. There's no paintings. There's no decoration. The voice you start hearing screaming and yelling, and immediately your clothes are ripped off. Uh, all your belongings, whatever you did have with you, is taken away immediately. And you said you're not going to, they tell you that you're not going to be able to see this ever again until you leave here. Your head is shaved and you start getting grabbed and pushed, you know, really roughly. Um, the first 10 nights, you're going to sleep on the ground in a hallway, a long hallway full of kids. All night long, you're going to hear crying, screaming, uh, staff screaming at kids, some kids yelling back, some kids crying. You can, your mind just kind of wanders as to like what's happening right now. You know in these walls behind me so for the first couple of nights you're in shock um and that's what they want to do it's kind of uh it's kind of built on um you know even the way our american prison systems try to shock people and and kind of use the whole experience as a quote-unquote punishment versus any mm -hmm. kind of 
facilitation. Um, and then you get kind of put into a structured day where you're, you know, school for them is you're not, you don't have teachers. You just read a textbook and in the back of that textbook, uh, you know how they have like the, the pages of tests, like this is chapter one quiz. Yeah. You take, those, you take those tests and that's how you actually graduate by taking those tests, you know, once a week and, and taking that two hours, three hours a day during school time to read the chapter and learn about it. Um, you know, from there, it's just, it's a total brainwash mind game. We're not allowed to talk to any people next to us. We have to raise our hand to stand up, to sit down, to use the restroom. There is no speaking allowed unless you're speaking to staff. After the first three days at the one I went to first in Mexico, you were actually not allowed to speak English anymore mm -hmm. because they didn't want some of the staff didn't understand English as well. And they didn't want children talking and like trying to make run plans or anything like that. Um, the food was just garbage, you know, the same thing every week, um, which we're forced to eat 70% of it, or we'd have these consequences. And the consequences there were basically like time added on to an indefinite sentence. Um, so, you know, if you talk to that permission, if you stood up with that permission, you would just add on time, basically. Oh my my, God. Yeah, that's a, that's one part is crazy just because like you already know, don't know when you're leaving and they're telling you like, hey, you don't know when you're leaving. You, the, the worst case scenario or the best case scenario is when you're 18, you'll get $50 and a bus pass and put on the border of the U.S. and Mexico and be told to live your life. And, you know, as a 12, 13 year old, that's infinity. It's, that's like you can't even fathom you know, that much time. Um, my first time getting a consequence there, we were watching, a, we have to watch these videos uh, on the History Channel and like take notes on them. Mm -hmm. and they're talking about like uh, the doomsday, some war. And in that war, there was a, a date, February 14th, which is my birthday, that mm -hmm. uh, ships came back in the harbor. And it was my, maybe my second or third week there, so like the not talking at all thing, so that really went in my brain yet. And we're all sitting there, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, that's my birthday. And I said it out loud by accident, and boom, like I was sent to a place called Worksheets first. Mm -hmm. um, Worksheets where you like sit on the edge of your chair, and a uh, steel chair, sit back straight, and listen to audiobooks from like Tony Robbins and all the, the audio speakers, and just write. And you have to write left to right the full page until like your four or six hours is up. Um, and the second time I went actually to that place, I was sick and I was like crying. And I was like, please, like I don't feel good, like I'm sweating. Um, someone come help me. So finally, one of the dorm fathers, which is what they're called, the staff that watched us, they radioed to administration and said, you know, can you come see what's going on with this kid? Um, mm -hmm. So the guy that walked in was Jason Finlinson. And crazy story, but after I got out of this place, I'm gonna tell you the rest of this, the place I got sent to at 17 where my hands were cuffed, Jason Finlinson was actually the head administrator at the next place after this place got shut down. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he came in and he grabbed me by my shoulder, picked me up, threw me into the wall behind me, and kicked me down the hallway and hogtied me, which hogtied is basically you lay on your stomach, chin on the ground, and your hands and feet are tied together behind your back. Um, and that's where I spent the next like couple of days, maybe more than that. Um, they'd only let you out once a day to eat rice and drink orange juice. Um, and that's it. And that was not something that just happened to me. That was probably the light end of a very common punishment for any kind of rule violations at that in particular facility. And for the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, that is the way they deal with any disrespect, any rowdiness, anything at all. Um, you know, and, and these schools are marketed to have A1 food, great counseling, great medical care, 
you know, their kids are going to get help and this and that and, and, and accelerate in school. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, you know, none of that could be further from the truth. It's, it's all a uh, blatant lie. And the parents are manipulated as well into believing um, that that's not happening. Um, and on top of that, they tell the parents that your kids will try to lie to you and manipulate you uh, so you can't, they don't know what's going on. So when you write letters home, they'll actually like redact and black out a lot of your letters, or they'll say, hey, you got to rewrite this. You can't say this in a letter to your parents. So I was just about to ask you, did your parents have any idea any of this was going on? So I remember when I got back, I actually told my parents a little bit of what happened. Um, and they kind of didn't believe me. I mean, and honestly, it's hard to believe right now. It's hard sometimes when I say it. I see mm -hmm. other people look at me like, are you serious? Like, are you sure that happened, man? Like, I'm just like, yeah, they're my memories. I, I remember them quite clearly. You know, it's, it's pretty traumatic events. Um, but when I told them, you know, at that point when I wasn't at the age I was and I was, you know, talking back to them quite frequently and, you know, they didn't like that. They didn't really, you know, believe me. Um, so they actually sent me to the same program three or four years later, like I said, with the same guy running it. And that, that program was same thing, Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, except it was instead of Mexico, it was on the border of the U.S. and Canada. After you came back home and you were home for good, I mean, what, what, was, what was your next step after that? What happened to you then? Um, so it became a pattern. Um, you know, after India, then Mexico, from 11, 12 to 17, when I finally got to the last one, uh, every six months I was in a different facility or a different program. Um, I eventually started getting in trouble in school as well as within, with police. Um, you know, when I got out of Mexico, I got sent from Pasadena High School or Pasadena Public Schools to a private school in Alabama. Um, this school in Alabama, <clears throat> UMS Wright, no one really knew my family there. So my father's like position in the society didn't really mean anything. And that was the first time I kind of find out, found out that, hey, like I'm very different. I'm not um, like most of the kids there, like a, a normal like white kid that's, you know, getting the privilege of whatever they are having there. And I'm, they're telling me that like my, my headmaster at school, I wore a FUBU sweatshirt one day and he's like, Rocky, stop dressing or why are you dressing like a NIGGA? Like, straight to my face and like casually, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, which back then I didn't even, it didn't even register, you know, like mm -hmm. what he really was saying. Like racism was a thing that like, it was, it existed obviously, but it wasn't like, like right now we have people like standing up for other people, fighting back, putting stuff on social media. Back right. then in Alabama, it was just like, it would happen and it wouldn't be talked about and you wouldn't really hear anything about it much. Um, so I just kind of, I mean, I didn't brush it off. I definitely hurt me. But as an adult, it's crazy, 30, 20 something years ago, I still clearly remember like what I was wearing, the, the shirt, the sweatshirt I was wearing, which hallway mm -hmm. I was in, how he said it, how he turned back and looked at me and said it. Um, and that was just one comment that really stung because it was from the headmaster. Um, and the comments from the kids in the school, you know, were just, I actually got kicked out of that school because a kid called me a sand N word. And I mm -hmm. told him to that again, I will kill him. I'm mm -hmm. 13. So I'm just like mad. Like obviously, right. but they kicked me out of school. You know, a couple of days later for that. Um, and then from there, when I got kicked out of there, I got bounced around to these little like one-on-one -on -one schools for a minute um, until. And the timeline is a bit hazy now because like it all happened so like it was six months at home and then six months at a different facility. Um, I got sent to a military school, I believe, uh, in Atlanta. Um, that was a crazy time as well. Um, that's kind of like where I 
I guess like for when I talk to the guys, like that's where I kind of learned how to defend myself for the first time in my life. It was um a bunch of guys in dorms uh, without as many rules as boot camp, so it was just fighting all day long. We had fight clubs where we'd all like pack 15 deep into a room. They would mm-hmm. take bets, and I was the biggest. I believe I was a sophomore at that time. I was the biggest sophomore, so they always get me to fight the seniors that were like huge, and they would just love to see me get beat up by the seniors. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of held my ground as much as I could, and you know, just kind of learned to, to swing. You know, in here and there, I was always like a very, like, calm, like quiet, like happy-go-lucky type. You know, I didn't fighting like was the most fighting I would do was like words and arguing. I wasn't really like a, a come after you and swing type of person. Um, after military school, you know, that that pretty much changed. I, I like I became one of those like, okay, I know what I can do now. I know that if someone bugs me, you know, I can I can kind of kind of handle myself at least, you know, to some degree. Right. And I did good there. I had great grades. All throughout high school, I had great grades. My dad wanted me to stay there. I just didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to be in a boarding school. I wanted to be at home, you know. Um, so he took me uh, from there to a Catholic boarding school. Um, and I was coming up on a junior now. Spent some time there. Eventually got kicked out. My science teacher, I was. I used to write rhymes and lyrics. And um, my science teacher, I ripped out of my hand one day. And I got up and yelled at him. And, you know, they, they told me to leave that school. It was actually a big ordeal. Like, police came to our dorms and, like, the dorm fathers. You know, the thing is people don't get, like, at these boarding schools, like, their parents don't get usually is, like, yeah, they're good places. Yeah, the kids can act a certain way. But, like, when they don't behave, right, when a kid like me who's doing well in grades, who plays sports, doing well in sports, who also has a quick mouth and a sharp tongue and talks back, right. those aren't don't have that type of training. And they're – they don't know what to do, especially on a larger size kid. Like I was probably close to six foot by then, you know, besides like resort to some type of threatening or violence. And as a, a hot, a hot headed, hard headed kid, like that doesn't, that doesn't phase me. I've been, I've been, I've been to boot camps, military schools. I've been in jail at this point already in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to back down, you know, at all. Uh, I'm also not violent to the type where I'm going to you know, grab something and throw it and hit you, but I'm not going to back down. Um, and that was what, you know, eventually led me to having to get kicked out of that school. And I guess at that point, my dad's like, you know what, he's whatever, let him come home to pass school, public high school again, where nobody had seen me in three years. I just disappeared for three or four years and got sent around to all these schools. And I came back all of a sudden uh, and everyone's like, whoa, we haven't seen you since, you know, middle school, since, you know, like eighth grade or something when you left. And I was back, you six foot tall with a mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to be cool. I wanted to like hang out with like, you know, the people that were everyone thought was cool, like date girls mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. so i kind of started that's when i first started getting into like okay let's party let's have some drinks at this point i don't think i really drank or got drunk or anything like that you know but i wanted to at that point i wanted to like really like party you know, you know do different things and experiment and, and leave the house not to go drive in circles or get food but to go to a different state and you know get a fake id and see how we can party there mm-hmm. uh, and that's when I actually got pulled over for the, the first big arrest. I got arrested on the way back from Florida spring break uh, when I was going to that high school. Um, and the two other kids were with me, the one that was driving, you know, they all got slap on the wrists, um, probation, like unsupervised and let go. Me, <clears throat> that's when I got woken up in the middle of the night, handcuffed, feet cuffed, and sent to the boot camp in uh, the border of Canada in New York, where the same guy, Jason Thompson, was. Same program, head shaved, clothes off structure 
not really good food, no real teachers, no real counselors. Um, and that's why I graduated high school with what we found out three years later, a fake diploma, because the school was not even accredited, actually. They Stop were, it. Yeah. So luckily, I got accepted into college before um, that came up, right before the school. It went back into the state of New York, so you know, this is a not accredited school. We're not going to, nobody's going to be allowed to have a diploma from here. It's not accredited. Luckily, I'd already got into college at that point, and so I didn't mm -hmm. need it anymore. But if you were, if someone were to like look back and see like my records right now, like, hey, this guy graduated high school. <laughs> I don't have a high school diploma. So. That's crazy. And then when you got to college, you just, what was your major in college? So I started with pre-med. Um, and I guess I should back up and say, when I got to college, I was still 17. My parents mm -hmm. went to college in our hometown of Mobile, Alabama. And I had like a chip on my shoulder. I was ready. I was a man, 17 and a half. I was like, no one can tell me anything. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. If that's drugs, violence, partying, girls, whatever, like I'm, I'm out here. I'm going to do whatever I want. Right. And that's what started me um, from 18 until 22, um, you know, got in the path of like selling drugs, doing drugs, uh, fights, constantly being robbed and robbing other people. Um, you know, everything all in between out there. You know, anybody that, that is listening, you know what the street life is. Like there's right. not a part of it that I didn't jump into headfirst. Um, and I was, that was my identity. I was like, you know what, this is who I am. I've already been called a bad kid in trouble. I've already been in jail. I've already been to boot camps. This is who I am now. And I'm going to go ahead and embrace every bit of it and, and be the best this person I can be. I mean, mm -hmm. I got in trouble for having like guns on campus for, for go traveling to New York with, with sawed off shotguns, um, you know, all kind of misdemeanors for possessions uh, until finally I caught my like big boy charge, which was a distribution of controlled substances charge uh, with the feds, the state, the local police all. But like a sting operation uh, followed me for for some time and made an undercover you know, uh, purchase from me. Um, and that's when I actually, you know, went to Alabama State Prison, um, did time there in prison a couple of years as well as jail and then inpatient rehab and house arrest. And they gave me like the worst, like I had, I don't know how many lawyers I had. My dad paid for a bunch of lawyers. Um, I ended up with pretty much the worst sentence that a first-time offender um, at a young age could get for the same charge and the amount of the substance that I had. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember I was in prison with a dude next to me that had the same sentence I did, which was 10 years split three to serve um, for being drunk on a motorcycle and killing somebody. Um, he had the same exact time as I did. That's crazy. I mean, we know why you got it, but yeah, why? <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, it's the truth. We know why you got such a tough sentence. But now, was this before or after you got shot or shot at? I got, so when I got shot, I had to rewind back when I was like thirteen when I got shot at. That, that was, was at thirteen. At thirteen or fourteen, yeah, at the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> that was back in Mississippi. Uh, it was actually a basketball game. Me and a buddy of mine were playing. We made a bet on, and that we didn't want to honor the bet, so we ran. <laughs> the guys <laughs> shot at us over our heads. Like I don't know if they, I don't think they were trying to hit us. They probably could have hit us if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. but they definitely scared us. And like, well, I guess I guess we were kind of scared, but we were more excited. I know it's like sounds crazy, but that age, like we we're just like, oh man, like we got. Yeah, I thought y'all some real thugs then. <laughs> 
Exactly. We earned our stripes. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, so I know you was, you was shot at and you were stabbed. Now, did you actually? I actually got stabbed. Okay, okay. So this is a road trip to South Florida with a buddy of mine and my brother. And uh, we're on the road and it was kind of like a, a road rage situation between me and somebody else. Mm-hmm. And eventually we went to a gas station and I don't think we knew that people were still behind us. So my buddy was like counting some money in his lap or something like that. And our windows were both open and the guy kind of reached in the car and um, I kind of like grabbed mm-hmm. his hand and tried to hold him. And that's, he had a butterfly knife, like one of those ones you flip out and switch like this. Mm-hmm. Stabbed me right here in the arm. Um, pretty deep stab. I still have a decent, decent scar on my side. Um, but I was also intoxicated. So I kind of laughed it off even that night. Um, mm-hmm. The police came to our hotel the next day and, and like I said, we saw the footage. Um, you know, we saw you, like I actually hit the guy with my car um, and then made it back to the hotel. And they're like, we saw the footage, like we need you to go to the hospital. Like you're bleeding right now. I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. You know, it's okay. <laughs> this is, this is only, uh, this is, I think I was 24, maybe 23, 24 at this point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and once again, the timeline, I'm hazy on it. I don't remember the exact times. If I actually look back and ask my dad, he probably knows the timeline much better. But um, I didn't get it. I went to the hospital and to this just a couple of years ago. So they were chasing me for a 700 hour hospital bill. And I was like, no, I told you I don't do anything. All y'all do is give me a Band-Aid because I asked you not to clean it, not do anything to it. Right. Um, I even recorded it because I was like, no, I don't have health insurance. Like my dad's, my, I'll get it done in my dad's office. Just like, just chill. So I drove back mm-hmm. to Mississippi, like 10 hour drive. And then my dad like stitched it up and put some cleaning stuff on it. Um, and yeah, and that he was- still charged you. Well, they, the hospital charged me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They chased me for a good 10 years over that. And we didn't pay them. We're like, no. We didn't, I got a band-aid on. I'm like, oh, this is not, I'm not paying mm-hmm. for a band-aid. That okay. ain't nothing. No one took me there. It's just, and that's honestly the, speak, the state of our healthcare system. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Now, okay. Then, look, look. And then this <laughs> Okay. You had over 20 major surgeries. And and you were like kicked in the face several times too at one point. I oh, yeah, I skipped that part. So before I went to prison, actually, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh, but it's just like there's a this lot. Is a, this is a Netflix series, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I was on house arrest. I had an electronic mm-hmm. monitoring bracelet on. I had already caught my charges, but they hadn't sentenced me to prison time yet. Mm-hmm. And I was also graduating high school at this, or college at this time. Um, so I was trying to finish up my degree, get my degree done. And one of the classes I'd take was a music class. Uh, it was just like a prereq, one of those ones you just had to take it. And in that music class, one of the things we had to do was go to an opera. So I got permission from my probation officer on house arrest to go to the opera downtown. Um, and we went down there and on the way back, uh, we stopped at a bar. So another part of what I was doing at that time, I'll do club promotions. Right, I would get people to come inside clubs. I would get people to sign up for wristbands and make a deal with the bartender or the owners and get a percentage of the bar, get a percentage of the door sales. Some of like rivals or like you know people that work in the same industry uh, were at the bar that I visited that night, um, and this was like a big court case as well, um, you know, in the city. Um, but they uh, picked me up and threw me into a concrete sidewalk where my entire jaw was crushed. Um, all of these teeth, these are all fake. Actually, all on this side is all fake. They had to take a piece of bone out of my head and put it in my jaw to build my teeth back up. Um, and then every other tooth in my mouth was like root canals, damage, plates, and everything. So the only two teeth, four teeth that actually were real are these right here in the middle. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I have like wires in my jaw from here to here, plates all right here holding it together. Um, the doctors did an absolutely amazing job, like because they said that, like you know when I first came in it was like a jumble of bones, um, and they don't, don't know how they're going to put it back together basically. Um, but yeah, that process started maybe three years of just surgeries, four years maybe of like surgeries of t- to pull my gum line up, of re-breaking my jaw, of taking my, opening my head and putting bone inside my mouth from my head, putting bone from my hip inside my uh, jaw as well, building my teeth back up and fixing all the broken ones. Uh, in fact, when I actually, and during all this is like when I was actually one graduating from college, got my degree during all this, like during this mm-hmm. time, um, and got accepted into, you know, graduate schools as well. Um, and also, uh, at the same time, I was kind of still very rebellious or well, very rebellious. And I was going to Mexico and smoking weed and partying still. And I'd have big parties in my house. And I was on, you know, I wasn't on probation or anything at this time. I didn't feel like it was justified or, you know, within my rights. I was against my rights to, you know, perceive me as guilty until they actually called me guilty and, and that day was in court. Um, so I kind of did what I wanted to do. And one of those things I did during all this was went to Mexico. Um, and mind you, at this time, I only had half my teeth. So I'm like walking around with like half my teeth while I'm out. Oh, my God. Just doing all this stuff. Um, but yeah, I went to Mexico and, and my probation officer found out. And, you know, I'm in on a drug case. And like, they think that like, oh, this dude's like moving, doing this, doing that, moving drugs, something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you know what? We're sending you to prison right now. Um, no matter what, what's going on. No jail, no house arrest. We're going to go ahead and give you the a 10 split three sentence means that you could have a chance not to go to prison uh, the first three years, uh, or you could go after the first three years, depending on what the judge never wants to do with you. I didn't really think that they were going to give me any leeway or any kind of leniency anyway, um, and I didn't give them a chance to on top of that. Um, so eventually I sent me to prison with half my teeth missing. So while I was in prison, like every day I, I would bleed because it was just mesh metal on out. Um, and it was stink. Right. I'm bleeding all day. So people would be like, yo, what's wrong? Why your teeth smell? You know what I mean? I was like, man, like, look, like there's nothing here. It's all bleeding. Finally, when I moved from maximum security to medium security, which they put me in max security because the excuse was that um, they had to have a doctor around at all times. And only the medium and maximum security prisons have doctors. So I stayed in medium and max, okay. like Adventurous uh, and, and Kilby and stuff for most of my sentence until finally... I got sent to a work release uh, facility, like a ready or a camp facility, basically. And one day I was there, I was working on the interstate and stuff. My metal popped right out of my mouth. So I had to go have emergency surgery from prison. And that Jeez. was a whole different experience, like being pulled around in a hospital with handcuffs and stuff. And it was, it was crazy. So finally I got out of that and they let me come back. They tried to threaten me and say, oh, since you had surgery, you got to go back to maximum now. I'm like, come on, man. Like, Leave me alone. Let me be. Yeah, as soon as I made it to an actual, like, full, like, work center, um, mm. the judge heard about it, and they're like, oh, we're going to let him go. Um, and they let me go, and I came back home uh, to more inpatient halfway housing, to more probation, um, where, you know, almost, by the hand of God, almost got in trouble again. I jumped back in the same lifestyle, started selling, started partying, I started doing a lot, lot more drugs that when I got out, I was just, you know, trying to like numb the pain basically. Um, like, you know, that, I'm not tired person where you can punish me or beat me up and I'm going to learn a lesson like that. Those things come from within. Mm-hmm. I guess that moves to the next conversation is like, finally, I had my teeth back. 
I finished my probation. I uh, didn't wind myself back up in prison. They had a day in court. They let me like totally go. So you finish your sentence, you finish your probation, you paid your fines, you're done. Um, and I was dating this girl at that time who was like, you know, the bad news, you know, rest in peace. She, she overdosed. She, she actually took her own life. Oh, yeah. Like a little bit after we broke up. Um, but, um, but yeah, there was one day my father came in before that happened and he was just kind of like, Hey, you know, I haven't really heard from you. I don't know what's going on, but all your things are done. You have your teeth back. Why don't you leave? You know, why don't you get out of the country? Why don't you go somewhere else? And this is one of those like touch by an angel, higher power, higher energy, God moments where the man that sent me all around the place, the man that I butted heads with and we fought all the time, he said it in such like a nice, not even nice, like a certain way. Like he must have had God speaking through him, a higher power speaking through him because it was only one sentence. I thought about it for a couple hours and I said yes. And that was November 4, 2012, I believe, maybe 13. Um, and I left. I mean, like all the drugs I was using, I was selling, uh, all the circles I was in, my car, my home, everything I had, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let go of it. I said bye to the people I wanted to say bye to. And three days later, on my mom's birthday, November 7th, I was on a flight to India. Um, and that's where, you know, I didn't plan on changing my life. I didn't plan on like this never doing the things I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I wanted something different. Right. Um, but I hadn't really had a taste of that different, you know, independent, quote unquote, good, progressive lifestyle um, until that point on my own and on my own accord without someone forcing me. Um, and once I did, I feel like at that point, I was like, you know what? I want this life. I don't want to go back to selling this and that, to partying and staying up late and waking up, you know, late just to party again and do it all over again and looking over my shoulder and fighting with my parents and having these relationships that are just driving me crazy. You know, I want, I want something different and better. And it wasn't a snap of the fingers. You know, it really wasn't. I didn't just all of a sudden get better. Um, I wouldn't call myself like just better or anything. Now I think it's like a, a daily thing that I have to work on. I think anybody, as far as healing and like progression goes, it's a daily practice, something you implement, you know, you do on a daily basis, you know, um, for the rest of your life. Um, but yeah, I, I started down that path and that's when I started Hair Made in India. The idea for Hair Made in India, the company, that I, uh, the hair protection company I own, actually wrote that business plan while I was in Alabama State Prison. Uh, we'd use my, my friend's snuck in cell phone uh, to make calls to his sister and his girl and mm -hmm. like figure out the market, ask about prices, you know, what's hot in the marketplace and this and that. And when I was in India, you know, a couple of years later after I was out, I was trying to figure out what to do. I was like, okay, I'm here, I'm off the drugs. I, my mind is clear. I'm working out every day. I'm getting healthy. I'm living on a farm. I'm eating good. What am I going to do? So I started looking at businesses, you know, like restaurants, liquor stores, clubs, this and that, everything. I didn't know what to, I wanted to do. Um, and this one-page business plan that I wrote in prison kind of came back into my mind. And um, <clears throat> I was in India already. So I, at that point, I rented a car, got an apartment, and started, like, touring around, you know, figuring out what's going on in the business, all this and that. And then I made one Facebook post. And all my homegirls in high school were just like, oh, man, Rocky, you got hair? Like, we're going to rock with you. Like, we're going we gonna to buy with you. Let's just bring it home. Bring mm -hmm. it home. And I took the money from – I keep having to back up. So the people that did this, uh, the DA told my father, your son is a criminal and a drug dealer, and he wasn't supposed to be downtown, so we're not pressing criminal charges against the kids. They didn't even try – they didn't press any criminal case against them at all. But my father pursued a civil case. Uh, with that civil case um, that he pursued, there was an eventual settlement, 
And that settlement money is what I used to start Airman India um, and buy like the first inventory batch basically. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of, it all, it all kind of worked out together. And I, I spent a lot of that money too on different things. I was still partying back then, but eventually like that became like the, okay, this is what this money's going to go towards this. Um, and yeah, I mean, at that point in my life, another little backup, I was like getting married as well uh, to my now ex-wife. Um, and, you know, so I was like, I want, I want a wife, I want a family, I want a kid, I want a happy life, I want to work for it. Um, I have a habit of rushing into like a lot of things. No. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least at this point, I was rushing into like better things instead of like the opposite way. Um, right. I was rushing it. So like I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready, you know, for a marriage at that point. Um, but I wanted to try and I got back to the States and I got a job. I started teaching tennis. Um, you know, getting paid really well teaching tennis and do our best, like figure out what this new life is like, you know, working, trying to, you know, build a family up and, you know, not doing what I used to do and not being around the place to be around, you know, 24 seven anymore. Um, but, you know, I still had plenty of slips in there. I still had even times when I would, you know, pop pills again, um, you know, during that smoking crazy amounts of weed, um, you know, and drinking a little bit in excess, you know, quite a bit in excess actually back then. Uh, so finally, you know, during that time building the business, you know, doing trade shows, uh, trying to you know establish a new relationship, uh, we eventually tried California, uh, which is where I live now. Um, and the first couple of weeks of being in California, we we're living with her family, and we drove a minivan over there from Alabama. Uh, we split. She left. She flew back to India, and it was like, you know, we're not going to be together anymore. So I had a choice once again. Like, I was living homeless. I was living out of a minivan and in hostels. Didn't have much money. I had a little bit of inventory and I had a little bit of a business that I had built up. Um, and I was like, man, like all my friend, family and friends, like come home, you know. And I, I almost thought about it, but I was like, no, I, if I come home now, I'm, I know I'm gonna, I know what I'm gonna get back into with this mindset. Like I know who I'm gonna hang out with, how I'm gonna make money, and how I'm gonna spend my time. I don't want to do that, and I want to try this out. On the same hand, when I was in LA at that time, you know, living homeless and, and drinking and partying, like I was also like kind of going down downhill a little bit, like, you know, randomly, like, in bathrooms in Hollywood, doing a little bit of coke and stuff like that, um, you know, getting into the wrong crowds again. Um, and, you know, once again, I was kind of just, just blessed. I had, like, kind of like a, a time on May 4th, Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, um, maybe four years ago, was when I made another big shift in my life. And I finally got an apartment, you know, as a felon with no work history, no bank account history, no rental history. It was so hard for me to get a spot. Um, so eventually I had to like take a loan out <clears throat> where I paid back like a crazy amount of money. And I showed this apartment complex in my business bank account. I had a certain amount of money and they finally let me rent it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I moved in and maybe a couple weeks later on Cinco de Mayo, I was texting with one of my good friends, Sean, uh, who was living in Korea at that time. And he was, he's always been like my, my friend, my best friend, my mentor guidance, just a shining light in my life. And he was kind of telling me he's going to come, you know, he's like, he thinks I should stop drinking and stop smoking. And that day, May 5th, I quit. I stopped uh, pretty much everything, you know, for a short period of time. Um, you know, I definitely still indulge in alcohol here and there. I have quit smoking marijuana since then, which is another shift later on, but I also implemented good things in my life, like yoga, meditation, breath work. And the biggest and most important thing for me was the YouTube tapes and books I started reading back then. Cause until this point in my life, my what I put in my ears and my eyes were, you know, whatever's on TV, and then Boosie, Webby, Jeezy, Weezy, like rap, all rap, all like 
hardcore type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was like mm-hmm. what I enjoy. I still like enjoy that music sometimes here and there. But now what I do is I, I consciously put Tony Robbins, uh, you know, Trent Shelton, Joe Dispenza, these kind of people in my ears and in front of my face, those kind of books. I've done that for about four or five years now, the last maybe months or so. I've slowed down a little bit because I'm refocusing, you know, where I'm going in life once again. Um, I put a lot, but that right there for maybe three years straight saved my life. Like, I wish I could reach out to some of these people or meet them one day, like Ralph Smart, um, you know, Robin Sharma, Tony Robbins, and and these guys, and just be like, yo, like y'all literally saved me. Like y'all, your your words, your positivity, the things you say and share, like I felt it, and and I listened to them all day long. Like Dr. Wayne Dyer, you know, like all day long um, until. You know, slowly I started shifting more and more and more. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I eventually got a, a showroom downtown LA while I was living as well. Um, and the business started picking up more and more. I started, I, one thing that's, it gives me chills right now still to talk about and say it out loud. But the more I started working on myself and cleaning up my life and getting my things together and, and reframing the way I think, what I let into life, the energy I keep around me, the people I keep around me, my business just started going up and up and up like at fast fast speeds yeah until i got to a point where i was like wow like i need to like go back and do my accounting properly because this is i'm actually like <laughs> i'm actually making money now i need to actually like fix this and like make it a proper business mm-hmm. that's what i started working on uh, and i did that um and eventually i was living downtown in this like beautiful 1500 square foot loft in front of the staples center and you know my ex-wife was there with me for some time and had left you know uh, from there as well when she came back and I hated it. I was miserable. I was making money. I could do what I want to do. I was partying. I was what I thought I wanted to be like 10 years ago. You know, right. I was like, wow, I got it now. I got a car. I got a house. I can get girls. I can go to the club. I can smoke my weed. I can do this and that. And I'm making money legally doing all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was still miserable. And I didn't know why, you know, and like COVID happened. And that was just like, you know, honestly, like as much as people got hurt, you know, in COVID, I, my heart goes out to everybody. Uh, it was a blessing for me. You know, like it really was like, such a big blessing and then when i was going through it in the beginning just like everybody else i didn't think it was a blessing i was just like oh, right. I like right i'm stuck <laughs> in the house <laughs> but uh, i shifted my business doubled out. i think i'm doing maybe 5x the revenue i was doing during that time mm-hmm. from the, the things i changed and fixed during that time um and i let go of everything i had down there i had a house full of things cars uh clothes suits shoes beds, electronics and everything. I gave all that stuff, uh, PlayStations, like to the homeless people around downtown LA and wow. some of my neighbors. And I moved out. And my friends thought I was going crazy. I started talking to everybody again, just back away from everybody. My parents were mad at me, like, what are you doing? It's COVID and you want to move in some, move out of your house, the nice house that you have. And my, the girl that works for me now, AQ, even she was like, Rocky, like, this is your business. Like, you just fly. Like, what are you doing? And I was just like, man, it doesn't feel right anymore. I got to go. I was scared too because I was like, I haven't, that's the only place I ever like rented on my own. So I was like, man, they might bring up my prison thing again. I might not be able to another place. Um, right. And funny story, the first time I applied to another place, they were, I told them, I was like, so like, I had this thing that happened to me and I got in trouble and went to prison like 11 years ago. And the Spanish lady, she laughed like, oh, don't worry about it. We only go back seven years. Most of them do. And I was like, I was so worried about. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you understand how worried I've been about that, that one sentence right there, even to speak mm-hmm. out loud. Um, but from everything worked out, I moved into a hostel again, which I, I love. I, you know, I, hearing my story from like one of the military schools and boot camps, 
I grew up in that environment where you're around people. And then as an adult to choose that environment and to have like men and women travelers around in a hostel, I love it. You know, I, I love being there, especially if I'm alone, you know, not in a relationship. I just, it's just, that's the best place for me. Cause I don't like to be alone as much. I like to have mm -hmm. like people around me and I can still find my alone time when people around me, I'm not a type of you can just be like, Hey, like, let's go, let's go call me right now. I'm like, no, I'm still in my bed. I'm chilling. You do your own thing. Right. So it really worked out good for me. And I opened up a spot in, you know, Beverly Hills out here in West LA. And from there, you know, we've just literally month after month and like improved our systems, improved our marketing, improved our sales. Um, the girl rushed me started out barely making much at all. A year fast forward from that, you know, she's about to buy her own place in LA. Bought wow. herself cheap out here. Mm -hmm. doing very well so it's not even just me it's like i'm finally at the point which is why i wanted to start a business which is on my wall actually mm -hmm. i want to just one of my biggest like you know things i want to manifest and goals in life is to have the ability to give opportunity to my circle and my people and people that i love and care about and spread you know everything i've been blessed with to them um, and grow them and my family at the same time as well and and to travel and um you know and that's from where we were, you know, we were talking about when I was a kid to where I am right now. Um, that's the, that's the story basically. And now it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm changing everything. Once again, I'm letting go of hair made India a little bit and moving into coaching and speaking. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're doing podcasts now is, um, I want to eventually start speaking around the prisons, the high schools around the world, around the U S um, to share my story and to kind of like be a, a source of like inspiration and strength and hope for people and kids and even men and, and women and adults and children that, have went through my same struggles or similar struggles that might think that this identity that they're in right now, you know, living, you know, with, as a single parent or living, you know, paycheck to paycheck or addicted to drugs or like in major physical trauma or whatever it may be, because there's so many different, you know, things that, that's going on these days that they can make it out of that. And, you know, and it, I don't care if it sounds cheesy or corny anymore, because I know this, it, it literally all starts right here and right here. Um, it does. And, and the more you work on this, when I do this as well, like that's kind of, that's like, that's being connected to the universe, to God, to the source, to the, you know, the, the, the things that created us. Um, mm -hmm. And when you really like get your mind quiet enough and, and, and dive into that connection, um, magic happens. And I believe that's what COVID did. It's made everything quiet and it slowed everything down to where we could connect better without all the interruptions that we're used to. In this crazy life so that's why i said your story man it's 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 insane from boot camp to oh my god you said so much from boot camp to prison to back to prison back to boot camp to getting stabbed in the car getting you know getting shot at thinking it's funny i mean you <laughs> i mean it's insane from all that to now you're a successful businessman with the lucrative business in the hair business, which that was in itself is like, what a turnaround from, you know, I'm just going to call it what you was from being a thug to now being a CEO and being a, and, and a motivational speaker and an author and, and a podcaster and, you know, setting the example of what you can do in spite of. I mean, nope. I mean, it just sounds unreal. That's what I say. It's a movie. It's a Netflix series. I mean, it's 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 a lot. It's a it's a lot, dude. Because <laughs> you know, there's so many small stories in between there. 
I've been trying yeah. to write a book about it. And I keep like getting to a place. I'm like, man, I forgot about that story. And it's crazy. Like, I got to tell them about that. So I go back into it. And it's like, oh, like, how am I going to write this thing? It's too much stuff so, happening. <laughs> your draft's about this thick right now. <laughs> and then I have journals all back when I was in prison, when I was in boot camp. So I'm looking oh, at all really? the I'm trying to like remember more. And I remember all this every time I read it again, like, like, oh, I forgot about that story when, like, even when I was in boot camp, a kid hung himself on a basketball net. And I had forgot about that. And so I read the journals and I was like, how about Oh forget? my God. Yeah, that was a day, the day before I got there, that, that entire facility was locked down. So, like, Jeez. I kind of put all that in there. So, like, eventually when I do write this book, you can see like the entirety of like the, of like my, through my eyes, basically. Like, the whole growth of it all. Oh, it's definitely a book I want to see, read, listen to an audible. I'm an audible girl, so. <laughs> but oh my god! But okay, so how can people contact you if they want to have you on as a guest or for you to speak or whatever? Definitely, yeah. So my email address on the screen, rockycandola at gmail dot com. Uh, also, if you visit my website, uh, it's just rockycandola uh, dot com. Uh, there's a scheduling link on there. You can schedule with me, um, you know, or I'm not one of those robot hands-off people. My direct phone number is 228-596-5678. Uh, just pick up the phone and give me a call, uh, whether it's about hair, podcasting, speaking, coaching, or if you just want to, like, vent, um, I would love to just listen to you here. You know, I mean, this is what I'm doing now, and I, I don't really – I've got my businesses. I started another couple businesses as well, and I've gotten to the point where they don't require my 24-hour day attention anymore. And talking with Miss Lillian, being on podcasts, sharing this story, trying to help inspire people, that's what fulfills my heart. And that's what I'm putting my time, money, and energy into these days now. Um, so reach out to me. I'm here. And the funny thing, I know you're not lying because I know that like, if your customers have a complaint, like most companies, you actually talk to them. Yeah. You don't send them to a customer service rep. You do it, which you're is right. so unusual. Even but- if they- Mad at one o'clock in the morning, a little bit tipsy, <laughs> yelling at me. I'm still talking to him. I'm like, hey, slow down a little bit. Let's get, get on the same page real quick. Right. Let me get some coffee. Hold on. <laughs> Just give me a second. All right, now go. <laughs> that's that's amazing within itself. So, um, I was gonna ask you what advice you would give somebody, but you already did. You already said it as far as just believe in here believe in God and believe in yourself, you can do whatever you, you put your heart to. Exactly. I would say that definitely like quieting your mind mm-hmm. and getting your distractions, music, TV, food, even people, uh, taking a little bit of time to get quiet like COVID did for us and getting all that noise out of your head and really getting in touch with what's going on inside of you, meditating, um, all that stuff. And I don't even do it enough as I should anymore when I first started. When mm-hmm. I first started, it was like a medicine. I had to have it. And now I noticed myself getting off track, even my relationship and currently, like last night I was feeling antsy. I wanted to like, kind of want to go out or something. And she's like, I am too. Sit with it. And I was like, first I wanted to be like, (laughs) yeah, really? That's what you got to say? And I was like, she's right though. Like I got to like, those are the times like as, as I've grown in my spirituality and my development, that I have to check myself and be like, okay, I'm feeling like this. Slow it down again. Cause slowing it down is what helped me in the first place. Right. Okay, last question. If you could have any song be your theme song when you walked into a room, what would it be and why? Hmm. Um, 
so I hate to say it, but it has to it almost has to be Rocky because of my name. But then it, uh, like, it just every time I've ever been on stage anywhere or in schools, and every, it's, that's always what it is. And mm-hmm. not you know, me and my name is Rocky. It's just like it fits. It goes yeah. well together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're getting stronger. <laughs> Oh my god! Now I gotta watch Rocky this week. Just- <laughs> do, a, do a binge, a binge, a binge night. I, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time I did it. Start from the first, and the funny thing is, even when I watch it, you know how you watch a movie and you've seen it a thousand times, you see something that you missed, and it's like, how the heck did I miss this scene? Yeah. What are the, what was I doing? But yeah, love me some Rocky. Like I said, you you need to have finish this book. And get it out there because it it that your story definitely needs to be told on a global scale. It really does because it's you need. I mean, really, you shouldn't even be alive today from all what you went through. So it's nothing been nothing but the grace of God that you're still sitting here, still standing. So thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for having me. Always always love being here. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're welcome. Talk to you soon. Definitely. Take care. Hi, everybody. You, you too. Thank you, Rocky, so much for sharing. It is truly a blessing to know you and to know that your story is one truly for the ages and it proves that God can do all things if you only believe. And hey, did you know Worldly Church Girl is going live? That's right, Worldly Church Girl is going live. As a matter of fact, this very episode was recorded live You can see this episode on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, and LinkedIn. And if you would like to learn more about Worldly Church Girl, go to www.worldlychurchgirl.com and you can find out more about yours truly. Have you subscribed? Why not? What are you waiting for? Each show is only going to get better and better. Hit that subscription button so you will never miss another episode. And as always, thanks for joining your one and only Worldly Church Girl.